great morning in a lot of ways. <laughs> One is I'm so happy to be back here and to stand here with this view is uh, quite wonderful for me, quite wonderful in a renewed and beautiful kind of way. Hafiz is going to tell us a bit about it. In my divine studio, what I have been working on is this, painting the truth, revealing a more realistic picture of God, tearing down the cruel walls that separate you from this tender fire. Someone must be withholding the crucial lines in all these stories that you have heard of our friend, for there is still too much fear and pallor upon your cheeks and I rarely see you in that marvelous theater of freedom. Hafiz know you could not describe him even if we sat side by side on a caravan for years, even if we slept close in my desert tent and you became familiar with the holy scent that the sun and my master leave whenever they visit me. For everything has happened, and something has happened to your youthful passions that great fuel you once had to defend yourself against becoming tamed. And your eyes, your eyes now often tell me that your once vital talent to extract joy from the thin air has fallen into a sleep. All that you could ever say of me can only describe my camel's tail and that coarse hair that is barely visible sometimes on the left side of the moon's nose, in my divine studio, where I am sitting right now, crafting your heart, your lyre, and your flute, I long for the day when you will join me in knowing the extraordinary humor and all the enchanting realities of the, of the infinite performances of God. I'm always up here with mother's permission and uh, find myself usually quite unaware of what's coming next. I have a few scriptures. I always hope mother fills in the blanks and uh, takes us where we need to go this morning. As you know, I'm coming back from six months, which was really nine months, which was really ten months, in a, in a Christian monastery up in the Hudson Valley. It was a beautiful experience. It was a lovely experience. It was very different, uh, and it was uh, quite interesting to see how different it was. Um, I loved the practice. The, the monastery is in a very quiet setting. There's nothing else around it. Um, it's in the woods on the banks of the Hudson River. And so literally, you can throw a rock from the balcony. Well, if you have a good arm, you can throw a rock from the balcony into the river. And uh, I saw it in all of its seasons, the beauty of the fall, uh, just the tail end of the sweltering heat of summer, the barren tranquility of winter. To be able to sit, and uh, they have this dining room that's a circular, it's, <laughs> it looks like a, a cake plate, you know. It sits up on a pedestal, and it's a round building, and it has windows all the way around. And you get a sweeping view of the Hudson Valley with the mountains and the, the river and uh, the trees around. And to sit in there and just watch the seasons kind of cascade from one to the next was an, an infatuating and beautiful uh, experience to see how different, and yet to know that the unity in it all was me, that it was my experience of it as the witness to see this changing play of just one beautiful manifestation after another there. To live with the brothers who, you know, wear their robes and walk around in quiet halls, which is all very cinematically true, and, uh, and goes into, they go into the church five times a day, starting at 7 a.m., then at 9 a.m., then at noon, then at 5 p.m., and then at 8 p.m., to chant the names of God, to read the scriptures, to pray, to sing songs, and to just be quiet in contemplative prayer together it was a delightful experience. 
and really showed me the necessity of having a quiet place that you can go to just think of God, to just be with the beloved in any flavor, in any manifestation, just like the four seasons, each one having its beauty, each one having its dominant message, to sit with the beloved and to hear him or her, to sit there and know that you are, in fact, one with this divine love, with this divine being, to let that inform what you see and what you do and who you are. This is the very essence of religion. It's the very essence of life. Unfortunately, we've broken it off and given it a special word, a separate word, religion, which has become to stink to a lot of people for good reasons. Because nothing comes of religion. Everything comes from the heart. And it's pulled out not by going to church and not by gathering to listen. It's pulled out through practice, through friendship with the beloved, through time with the divine, where you've gone away from all of the delusional pulls of the world of what is great and what is beautiful, to find inside what names things great and what names things beautiful, to go inside and to find that center of self where the image of God resides, that one thing that gives anything value in this world. This world has nothing of value until it meets the heart. And the heart is what gives it value, that self. In the book of Matthew, in the New Testament of the Christian Bible, there's two parables. They're only a sentence long, so I don't know how he gets away with calling them a parable, but they do. (laughs) The first one goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had to buy that field. So we see somebody discovering the treasure, you know, which is what we're all hoping to do in that field, and then to secretly hide it in a funny way because we're we're so accustomed to things being temporary and impermanent, being stealable. (laughs) We hide it and then go and collect all of our, our assets so we can give everything and buy that field to own it. For most of us, we haven't touched that treasure. We're just buying a field. <laughs> we, we, don't, we know that we've heard the treasure's there. We know it's there somewhere. And we buy the field. But, but to come up with that payment of all that you are, all that you own, is, is quite a task in that, in that scenario. The second parable, he says, again, this kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Now, see, this merchant knows what he's looking for. When he found one of great value, he went away and again sold everything he had to buy it. So two scenarios with the same result. Encountering a treasure that is worth everything that you have and everything that you are. We read about this. We see it in the gospel, in the master's face, you know, when it says that he stands there radiating the sweetest, guileless, divine love for everyone. We see it in the thousands of people that gathered around him, that gathered around Jesus, that gathered around the Buddha to catch a glimpse of this divine love manifested, this unconditioned love that shines in the forms of compassion and empathy and caring, giving, sacrificing, giving all that you have to own it, to find it. But why is it that it's so dry for us? <laughs> you know, I, we sing these songs and they, they, they just raise that frustration inside, that, that anger with the self, with myself, the lower self, that smaller S, that, that, that's so intoxicated with its wants and with its desires and with its glitter and its gold. The frustration to run against that wall again and again for 54 years and not to find the beloved to smell the, 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 the beautiful aroma of knowing he's in the room, to, to see a sparkle, to catch a glimmer, to know you, you can feel it, you can sense he's here, he's here, and you're looking and looking and looking and not able to find it. What is it? Why can't we see? There's a wonderful story that Ramakrishna tells. Now for this, if you've got a, if you've got a piece of paper, you're going to need to know a few things. A seer is 1.25 kilograms. 
eggplant on the current commodities market in India as of this morning are selling for 18 rupees per kilogram, and that would be 25 cents, all right? A rich man said to his servant, take this diamond to the market and let me know how different people price it. Take it first of all to the eggplant seller. So the servant took the diamond to the eggplant seller. He examined it, turning it over and over in the palm of his hands and said, brother, I can give nine sears of eggplant for it. Okay, I did the work for you. That's $2.81. Whew. Friend, said the servant, a little more, say 10 seers. So he wants, a, he wants an extra quarter. He wants $3.06 for it. The eggplant seller rebuked him and replied, no, I've already quoted the above the market price. You may give it to me at that price if it suits you. The servant laughed. He went back to his master and said, sir, he would give me only nine seers of eggplants and not one more. He said to me, he said he had offered more than the market price. The master smiled and said, now take it to the cloth dealer. The other man deals only in eggplants. What does he know about a diamond? The cloth dealer has a little more capital. Let us see how much he offers for it. So the servant went to the cloth dealer and said, will you buy this? How much will you pay for it? The merchant said, oh, yes, it's a good thing. I can make a nice ornament out of it. I'll give you 900 rupees for it. You've probably already done the math, roughly $18, depending on the exchange rate. Brother, said the servant, offer a little more and I will sell it to you. Give me at least 1,000 rupees. The cloth dealer said, friend, don't press me anymore. I have offered more than the market price. I cannot give you a rupee more. Suit yourself. Laughing, the servant returned to his master and said, he won't give a rupee more than 900. He too said that he had quoted above the market price. The master said with a laugh, now take it to a jeweler. Let us see what he has to say. The servant went to the jeweler. The jeweler glanced at the diamond and, and said at once, I will give you 100,000 rupees, $2,000 for it. So you've got three different scenarios all being offered the same gem, the same treasure. And all three of them valuing it at a different level. And therein lies our trouble. <laughs> therein lies our trouble. There's a story that, that uh, in the gospel when, when uh, Ramakrishna is being visited by Bankim Chandra. And uh, he looks at Bankim and he's smiling and he says, well, what do you think a man's duties are? And Bunkim gives an answer that, that you probably won't have to walk more than a block from here to, to get from somebody on the street. He says, if you ask me about him, about them, this is Bunkim talking with a smile nonetheless, if you ask me about them, I would say they are eating, sleeping, and sex life. <laughs> Rather basic and simple. The master, sharply, ah, you're very saucy. What you do day and night comes out through your mouth. A man belches what he eats. If he eats radish, he belches radish. If he eats green coconut, he belches green coconut. Day and night you live in the midst of lust and greed. So your mouth utters words about that alone. By constantly thinking of worldly things, a man becomes calculating. A man becomes deceitful. On the other hand, he becomes guileless by thinking of God. A man who has seen God will never say what you have just said. What will a pundit scholarship profit him if he does not think of God and has no discrimination and no renunciation? Of what use is erudition if the mind dwells on lust and greed? Kites and vultures soar very high indeed, but their gaze is fixed only on the charnel pit. The pundit has no doubt studied many books and scriptures. He may rattle off their texts, or he may have written a few of them himself. But if he is attached to, to lust, if he thinks of money and honor as the essential thing, will you call him a pundit? How can a man be a pundit if his mind does not dwell on the beloved? Some may say about the devotees, day and night these people speak about God and shout God. They are crazy. They've lost their heads. How clever we are. We enjoy pleasure. 
We enjoy our money and our honor, the senses. Well, the crow, too, thinks he is a clever bird. But the first thing he does when he wakes up in the early morning is to fill his stomach with nothing but others' filth. Haven't you noticed how he struts about? Very clever, indeed. These are harsh words, and they're words that have to go to the heart. They have to be accepted. Because you belch what you eat. If you cannot give up all that you have for the gem that lies within you, it's because you are eating radishes. <laughs> it's because you are not able to see the value. You are the cloth man who's consumed in the business of buying and selling cloth and knows nothing of things of real value. The eggplant man who's dealing in his business of buying and selling eggplants and has become blinded to the beauty and the worthiness of higher things. We can't see because we belch what we eat. We're unwilling to pay all that we have for the gem that lies at the bottom of this ocean because we do not know its value, because we are measuring it against lust and greed, measuring it against getting our child into the best school, measuring it in how we feel driving our fancy cars around our big, huge houses. We get caught up in status symbols, things that are as dead as the wood of a fallen tree, and we spend thousands to prop up our image of ourselves, blinding ourselves, so that we look at spiritual things, we look at religious things, and we find no value in that. How absurd, how ridiculous those people are, believing in a God in this day and age. Can you imagine? Having no idea what's meant by the word God, having no idea what it is to touch infinite love, to find out that it is your very essence, that it is the only thing, the only stamp within you that gives you joy, that the little fleeting joys that you've attached to the objects of your desire come from that place within you alone. The fool thinks it's the object. The knower understands it's a reflection of the divinity within him and knows that he doesn't go have to spend his life in crazy pursuit of finding those things, but can enjoy them anywhere, anytime, in any condition. Finding bliss and finding joy, regardless of the conditions of the five senses. These patterns of five, I tell myself all the time, oh mind, these patterns of five, these five senses that you have, will you really spend your 80, 90 years just with different combinations of five senses. Enjoy it this way. Enjoy it that way. Enjoy it over there. Enjoy it over here. Eat it this way. Smell it that way. Touch it this way. Really, 90 years, what will you have accomplished? You'll have a big box of the combinations of five that you can't take with you and have only left you embittered. You say, oh yeah, well, you're a preacher. You, you say it left you embittered. I don't think so. Well, you will think so when you will think so, because those paths have been walked by many who have understood. And I can tell you in your youth, when you're handsome enough and you're beautiful enough to get the objects of your desire, when you have enough energy to run out and, and spend the night dancing the stars away, when you have enough of, of the money to pay for your travels and your trips and your health allows you to walk and climb in the beautiful mountains and enjoy all of the things of the combinations of five, that seems fine. But the end of the life is waiting. When you won't have that energy, when you won't have that health, when you won't be able to go out and win the beautiful things that you've taken pleasure from, and then what will you have? You'll be in a room. In reality, many of us will end up in a room in an old folks' home. People screaming in the hallways. Those places are horrible most of the time. If you have not touched the joy within you, what will you sit with in that room? Remembering the children you raised who barely come to see you? <laughs> Remembering the fancy cars you used to drive? that are now antiques and laughed at, to enjoy the big house that now you can only remember. And even if you're fortunate enough to die in your own house, that big giant house has become one room for you because you can't get out of bed without somebody walking you down the stairs.
You see, these things are impermanent, and there's a reason that the scriptures say they're impermanent. Know that they're impermanent, because you can't take them even to the end of your life, let alone beyond your life. Learn it now. I knew a Swami Asitananda in San Francisco, a very old Swami, very cantankerous Swami when I first met him. I didn't, I, I, in my, I was a brahmachari, brand new, so full of pride and ego, <laughs> and less aware of it than I am now. But seeing that, I judged him and thought, oh, you know, he's just a cantankerous old man. And uh, I got to live with him for 15 more years and watched him reach that point of life when he couldn't get out of a chair. And he lived in the Olima retreat, and his room was in the back corner of the barn. And he came to the point where he couldn't get out of a chair. He sat in the same chair he slept in at night. And on Tuesdays, I would go there for 24 hours to kind of just do karma yoga and, and help out with things around the place. And I would always check in on Swami Asitananda in the back room, sitting in his chair. And I learned something. I learned that this cantankerous old man had found something beautiful. Because every time I looked in on Swami Asitananda sitting in his chair, he was always glancing sort of up at the roof with these beautiful, watery, red-rimmed eyes and a smile of such contentedness on his face. It never altered. It never went away. He sat in a room with no radio, no television, no computer, in total silence, all day long, because there was only two other monks living at the center, and they were both in their 80s also. There was no one to visit him. It was a retreat center, 2,000 acres of pristine forest protecting him from any kind of uh, you know, stimulation at all. Occasionally people would visit. But he needed nothing. I watched him as the, as the, Alzheimer's, as the Alzheimer's began to take him over when he you know, going and finding that, that he used to, in his room, there was a small shrine on top of his dresser, and every single day, twice a day, he would go out into the vinca patch in the woods and pick the purple flowers and bring them in and offer them on the shrine to mother in his room. And I always thought that was kind of cute, kind of inspiring and nice. By the end of his life, before, before the, the bone troubles put him in a chair, he uh, began putting these flowers all over the place. I would find flowers offered on the, the automotive workbench, and I would find flowers in the refrigerator in the kitchen, and I would find flowers on Vimukta's chair where he sat to greet the visitors to the retreat, and you'd find flowers on his bed. And it became clear he was starting to see the Divine Mother everywhere, that he was walking around with a constant state of worship, a constant feeling of awe, because that treasure had been touched, because he had found that secret room inside and given everything he had, his life, his wealth, his hope of success, his hope of family and friends, given it all, and sat there day after day in the end of his life in a situation and condition that most of us would think is hellish and found nothing but the highest bliss, nothing but the highest contentment. And so I really beg myself in your presence to consider my life, consider your life. What is it that you're running after? What is it in this world that you have valued that you'll offer $2.81 for a treasure? That you'll offer, you know, $18 for a treasure? What is it that's blinding you? What foolishness are you still astounded with? intrigued with? What, what, what combination of the five senses is titillating you at this moment? Because it won't be the same combination available to you in even 10 minutes or 15 minutes in this ever-changing mind and an ever-changing body in a limited and ending world for all of us. Keep your eyes on the beloved Turn your eyes to faith. Faith is that inner knowing, that inner intuition. There's something more to life. There's got to be more than this. I can't play Fortnite until I die. <laughs> I can't browse the web, you know, 24 hours a day, looking for one interesting thing after another after another, 
only to wake up after a year and to see I have nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. I've gained no wisdom. I'm not able to love any more or any less than I could a year ago. What are these things that you're spending your life on to delude yourself, to be unprepared for what's coming for you? What is it that's causing you to not recognize the beauty of the nature within you, that image of God? In Ghazipur, Ramakrishna is telling a story, there was a saint living by the side of the river Ganga. A thief broke into his house. He had some silver vessels there. For many days, for many days this, this thief had been watching. A lot of devotees used to give offerings to this saint. The thief thought that there must be a great deal of treasure in that man's house. In the first chamber, the vessels are kept, and when the thief broke in, there was a lot of silver utensils. He took them and filled his bag, but it made a noise. And the saint heard it, said, Who is this? Some animal must be in my house. So he just came out of his meditation. He went into the room and saw a big man. When the thief saw him, he began to take to his heels and run away. And immediately the saint picked up the bag of utensils that was filled by the thief and ran behind the thief, asking him to stop. He overtook the thief, ran faster, and said, Why are you afraid? These are yours. Some more I will give you. I have others hidden away. And thus the thief was sent away with all the things he had in his house. <laughs> so the man goes to the man who has treasure. The thief goes to the man who has a treasure and grabs the wrong treasure. <laughs> grabs the wrong treasure. And for many of us, that's the nature of our religion, too. We offer our green coconuts and our sugar to the Lord, hoping that it gets our son or daughter into the best college. You know, we go and lay our flower with great humility on the altar of the beloved. You know, let me get that job that I'm looking for. Let me get that promotion. Make my lover get better. Please don't let my lover be sick. We go filling our bag with trinkets from the Lord. The Lord's happy to give as much as you ask for. Sure, sure, sure. But inside the weeping saint, when will he ask for the real treasure? When, he, when will he try and steal that which is really valuable in me, that which I have found? That which allows me to fill the bag for him, knowing that the combinations of five are at best worthless, at best trinkets. When will you go to Takor for that? For that piece of knowledge, for that piece of freedom, Vivekananda says that the first search for God was in external nature for the truths of the universe. It was an attempt to get to the solution of the deep problems of life from the material world, whose glory these Himalayas declare. This is a grand idea, but yet it was not grand enough for India. The Indian mind had to fall back, and the research took a different direction altogether. From the external, the search became to the internal from matter to mind. There arose the cry, when a man dies, what becomes of him? Some say that he exists, other that he's, others that he is gone. Say, O king of death, what is the truth? An entirely different procedure we find here. The Indian mind got all that it could from the external world, but it did not feel satisfied with that. It wanted to search further, to dive deep into its own soul. And the final answer indeed came. In the beginning, the search was out into nature for the meaning of life. And I'm afraid that's where many of us are stuck. <laughs> Our pursuit of, for the meaning of life, for, for the conditions of happiness, for the conditions of fulfillment, into the external world. There's a point about this that I... <laughs> it's very difficult to describe. I was on a walk yesterday... And we were trying to talk about this idea. The external world isn't going to be able to do it for you. And this is a, this is a very weird point. I don't know if you'll, you'll follow it or not. Because you don't know where the information that your senses are giving you is actually coming from. You've assigned it to the ear and to the eyes and to the nose and to the mouth. 
but you don't know that that's where that information is coming from. You have no way of verifying it. You can be fooled in a dream to thinking that's real, but it's not. You'll have the same combinations of five in that dream, and they're utterly being faked for you. You can go to a movie and find yourself weeping or terrified and covering your eyes in terror, but that's not real. That's more combinations of the five being fed to you from a movie screen. You see, the outside world doesn't have a verifiable reality. When you go to a great party and you have a great time there, and you come home and stand ready for bed, what do you have? You go out and you, you, you buy whatever you want to buy. Your, your, your kids grow up, they get into that college, they all become doctors. They all become super doctors and the best surgeons ever and are developing the highest technologies available and the entire community just falls down on their faces in front of you to worship you for your accomplishments and the high status of your family and the amount of money you have and the cars that you drive. And you go home and you stand and get ready for bed and you stand there alone. What do you have? What do you have? <clears throat> Think on these things. Understand them. There was a time when I had gone through my college degree, got my... my <laughs> oh, God, any time I tell these stories, there's nothing but humor in them. This life... I, I wanted to be a, a, an actor, and of course that mortified my, my religious family. Uh, my family had generations of preachers going back all the way to the 1700s in this country, and I wanted, I was the firstborn son, so I was supposed to become a minister. I wanted to become an actor. So, of course, they all freaked out and told me, no, I should have, you know, should, should study something practical. Do that on the side if you want, but study something practical. So I suffered, and I mean suffered through a computer science degree. <laughs> and I literally crawled across that graduation line that day, just barely making it from that effort that it took for, for, for me to bend myself into that shape. And I got that degree, and at the time I was working for Whole Earth Access selling computers, and I went out and applied for my first professional job, you know, that wasn't on an hourly wage, and I got it, you know, and suddenly, I, suddenly my, in, my income, like, quadrupled for a month, and suddenly, and I was in this situation where it seemed like, oh, my God, I'm so rich. I've got so much money. And in that first month, that's what it felt like. In the second month, I learned to adjust and to spend it as quickly as it came in, you know. And by the fifth year in that condition, I had learned that depression lies at the bottom of it in the most delightful way. I was laying in my room and feeling depressed and feeling unhappy, and I had done everything right. I was 27 years old. I had a professional job. I had a beautiful house. I had a nice car. I had great big speakers. I had a big television. I had everything that everybody said I was supposed to have, and I felt nothing. And I sat there thinking about it. I wasn't being religious. I wasn't religious at all at the time, I can tell you. I didn't have a, a spiritual thought in my body. But I was looking at my life in a real way, trying to figure out why I had done everything right. I had obeyed all the rules. I had listened to all my advice. And I had every reward that came to me from that. And I was sitting in the middle of it, depressed. And as I looked around, I realized this is absurdity because what has happened here, I have nothing more than I had in college. Just everything got bigger. I used to live in a one-room, uh, not even apartment, just a, a rented room off of a garage in Daly City. I had a television, a little 13-inch black-and-white TV, you know. I had, a, I had a little jam box with a handle on it. You know, I had a room to live in. I had a scooter parked out front that I drove to school. I had all those things, and I realized that here I am 10 years later, and I have nothing but that, just bigger. My little boombox is now a nice, big, giant stereo, five-foot speakers. All my friends were impressed. My little, you know, 13-inch black-and-white television was now a 32-inch Sony Trinitron. This is back when they weren't flat screen, so you know how much that thing weighed, you know, how big that was. I had that, you know, my little one room was now a nice big house. My little scooter had become a nice big car. My view of the front lawn was now my view of downtown San Francisco. 
But I had not one thing more after all that effort and after all that investigation than I had before it all started, living in my one room in Daly City. Pay attention to these things in your life because the beloved is trying at every turn to get you to understand there is something of infinitely more value that is right here that you don't have to chase, you don't have to produce, you don't have to develop. All you have to do is accept. Know that it's here, that contentment lies within you. In this moment is all that you need. And if you can't find the contentment and the joy in this moment, you're not going to find it in any moment. So you have to search in this present moment to find your joy. And when you find that joy in this moment, you will be able to carry it with you through the infinity of the moment. It will never leave you, whether you're sitting alone in an old folks' home wondering why no one's visiting you, or whether you happen to die a glorious death, who knows, in those ways. So that first search of ours into the world of the senses, into the material world for meaning, learn the lessons. If you pay attention, you can learn them quickly because they're obvious. They're not apparent, but they're obvious. And you will see them if you begin asking the questions. But it takes a great deal of courage to ask those questions, to investigate those things. Because what do you do when you realize that you have nothing more than when you began? What do you do when you realize that depression still can lie in the middle of, of all of that wealth and all of that pleasure and all of that enjoyment? What do you do? Where else do you look? It's a scary time. The big advantage that you have is that you're in a place right now that teaches us by example not by believing something in faith with no evidence for it, that's for fools, but for people of discrimination and discernment who are able to see this world as it really is, who aren't caught up in the fluff and the frill and the high activity volume production that's being asked of everybody, but is actually silent inside, serene inside, unaffected inside, and knows that the contentment he feels the bliss he enjoys, the love he manifests is coming from within, a place that he has touched, a place that he has found, a place that he knew intimately always, but had assigned it to all of the things out there. If we don't find that place, if you don't don't clean out that shrine that's in the heart. It stays hidden. It stays dusty and unused. It stays worthless to you. What else can you build on? The only other choice you have is ego. There's a great story in the Bible called the, the Tower of Babel, which you, you may have heard before. I'll read the story. It's only eight verses long. And it's talking about a time way, way, way back now, the whole world had one language and a common speech, and as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make some bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that will reach to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll, we will be scattered over the whole face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, why did we choose this for a story of ego? For a couple of reasons. One, because that's what it is. <laughs> that here, when you decide, I'm not going to use the things that I have, the natural stone, which comes from the heart within, all of the elements of understanding that, that light the fire of love in, the, in that cavern of the heart. I'm not going to use those things. I'm going to go make my own bricks. 
in my own man-made bricks, and I'm going to build this tower in the material world of material things to reach God, to reach that enjoyment, to reach that fulfillment. I'm going to do this. And in the story, God curses them. He, he changes their language so that they, nobody can get along, and then there's all this infighting, and they run off. The Christian scriptures have a habit of assigning re, real outcomes as being curses from God <laughs> for some reason. Because people could hear that better at one time. But all that happened here is, is, is the truth of what happens when you set about in any course that involves the ego. There's going to be discord there. There's going to be jealousy there. There's going to be disruption there. There's not going to be peace there. People are going to be trying to tear down your, your big tower. You're going to be consumed with having enough money to complete your tower. You're not going to find that unity and that harmony and that contentment of life in building external towers in your attempt to reach your nature outside. It's not going to happen. Why? Because your, your nature is infinite, and the canvas you're painting on is finite. The best you can do is fall in love with the image in the mirror, and that's a weird thing to do. <laughs> and that's the best you can do if you set out to build on ego, because that's all you'll have at the end is a reflection of yourself, a reflection of your mistaken grandeur based on the senses. Escape that. Vivekananda wrote a wonderful poem. He said, formulas of worship, control of breath, science, philosophy, systems varied, relinquishment, possession, and the like, all these are but delusions of the mind. Love. Love, that's the one thing, the soul treasure. In soul and Brahman, in man and God, in ghosts and wraiths and spirits and so forth, in devas, beasts, birds, insects, and in worms, this love dwells in the heart of them all. Say, who else is the highest God of gods? Who else moves all in the universe? The mother dies for her young, the robber robs. Both are but the impulse of the same love. God is love. You know, today we run around wondering, is there a God? Is there a God? You know, the atheism is at an all-time high, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing for the condition of our country at this point. It would be nice to go to a neutral place and start over <laughs> to reorganize our potatoes into something more meaningful. He says that love, this love is the one treasure. You don't have to believe in love. Love is self-obvious. It's, it's evident. You know, I, I like to point out again and again because I find it such a fascinating truth. Every poem you read, every novel you read, every movie you go see, every song you hear on the radio is about what? It's about love in all of its myriad of forms. We never tire of it. Have we ever wondered why? Why is that? One song after another comes out about love, and we are just as excited about it as we were the first one. It's because it's your nature. It's because it is that gem that lies within you. And you're being reminded of it in everything that you do in the world. In all of your efforts for pleasure in the world, you're just trying to recapture that knowledge. But you're going outside to do it. And that is an endless, unending task. Endless, unending. That's redundant. Taking the name of Kali, dive deep down, O mind, into the heart's fathomless depths, where many a precious gem lies hidden. But never believe the bed of the ocean bare of gems in the first few dives if you fail. With firm resolve and self-control, dive deep and make your way to Mother Kali's realm. Down in the ocean depths of heavenly wisdom, lie the wondrous pearls of peace, O mind, and you yourself can gather them, if you but have pure love and follow the scripture's rule, within those ocean's depths as well, be careful, six alligators lurk, lust, anger, greed, delusion, pride, and envy, swimming about you in search of prey, smear yourself with the turmeric of discrimination, of dis discernment. The very smell of it will shield you from their jaws. Upon the ocean bed lie strewn unnumbered pearls and precious gems. Plunge in, says Ram Prasad, and gather up handfuls of them there. 
All that wealth that you're searching lies within, but there's going to be something constantly circling around trying to pull you out. What? The combinations of five. That whole list, the six, the, the six passions, they're all combinations of five. They all tug at one of the five senses or, or, or a combination of them. Lust and anger and greed. Delusion, that's an interesting one. We're always talking about delusion. What is delusion? I looked it up. Added a very interesting piece of information for me. Delusion, an idiosyncratic belief or impression that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality or rational argument, typically a symptom of mental disorder. <laughs> so what is this delusion? This delusion is realizing that you've gained nothing more in your life through all that you've invested in except the size of your possessions and number of your possessions and believing that if you just get one more, that's going to be different. Delusion is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different outcome for it. This is very important to recognize in our life because most of us, myself included in this, are asleep and are not paying attention to this habit of ours. We say that we want our life to be better, and yet I will not change a thing today from what I did yesterday. I'll spend my few 15 minutes of, of warped and disturbed meditation, get up, run out, grab my cup of coffee, go to my job, act just like I did yesterday, go through my whole process, come home, do the exact same things, and go to bed, and wonder, why am I not a better person? Why am I not closer to the goal? Why have I not seen God? You do this for a life, and you say, why haven't I seen God? Why haven't I seen God must not exist. We get bitter. We get angry. That's delusion. When you do the same thing over and over and over again and expect change to come out of it, that's a mental condition. You're not well. <laughs> Face the fact and take the medicine. Change your life as difficult as it is. You know, work, work on that meditation. Make that meditation a delight and a joy. The one thing I always say about it, and it was key to, to, to that changed monasticism from being a drudgery <laughs> in some ways to being the greatest joy in my life. And it was this. When I read what Swamiji said, when he said, stop seeking God and see him or her. <laughs> stop seeking. When you go into your shrine or you go into your closet or you sit in your chair to do your meditation, don't go there with the idea of I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to get, I'm going to try, I'm going to attain. No. No. Sri Nishagadatta says, do you not understand? It is your quest for happiness itself that is the reason you are not happy. If you start off with the belief, I don't have it and I need to get something to have it, you will not find it. You will not touch it. You will not enjoy it. That's the way the senses work. That's the foolishness of materialism. I will just do this and get something in return. That something in return can never be a part of you. When you sit and meditate, sit to enjoy. God is present. How do you know that? I'll go back to Satchitananda. I say this all. I say the same things over and over. Mother's been saying them to me for a, maybe a thousand years, and I'm still wrapped in ignorance. But when you sit there, enjoy God, Satchitananda, existence, ponder existence. God is the I am. He has loaned it to you. That's what it means when, when in the Christian Bible when it says that God created you in His image. He put that existence within you. You're, you're borrowing your I am from God. He said that's his name, I am. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. Be for a moment. Just think of how incredible that is. What a wonder that is. That intelligence, your ability to not keep making the mistakes over and over and over again, but to actually learn something and to change and to evolve into something higher. That's an image of the beloved that's within you. Be glad in that. Be thankful that you have the option of growth, that you have the option of letting go, that you can renounce 
things that are worthless to find something that is worthwhile. Take great delight in that when you sit in meditation. And then ananda, love, bliss, that thing the whole world is trying to emulate, trying to build it, whether it's giant skyscrapers, big cities, golden streets, beautiful artwork, all of them, all of those works, just trying to capture a moment of love, trying to express it purely and perfectly. Enjoy that in your meditation. Turn your meditation into a party where you already have all that you need. Sit there and know, in this moment, I can have my, re my realization. Takor says, you can have it this moment. It's up to you. Nothing has to be done or accomplished. It's yours. It is your very nature. So sit there in your meditation and think, okay, I have everything that I need right now, right here for my realization. Why isn't it happening? Because you've defined it as not happening. Because you won't have the faith to accept it and to see it. You won't let go of that karmic wheel that demands you deserve it or that you earn it. You don't have the faith to let go of the wrong impression of who you are. I'm not good enough. I'm impure. I don't try hard enough. I can't meditate. I don't go to lectures regularly. I don't even meditate regularly. All these reasons that we've, these weights, these fishing weights that we've hung all over ourselves and we stand there, why do I feel heavy? Because you won't let go. You won't accept this delightful, beautiful fact of yourself that you are that. Sri Nishagadatta, who is widely believed to have been a realized soul, he was asked by an American devotee who was sitting there, he says, now you're an, you're an enlightened person, you've achieved this goal. Why can't I? What's the difference between you and me? Sri Nishagadatta smiles. <laughs> he, gives, he always gives the obvious but horribly frustrating answer. He says, well, the main difference is that when my teacher told me that I am that, I believed him. You still think you have to do something. You know, there's a great story of, I think it's Hafiz's poem, where he says, you know, a chess, a, a, a saint and a, and a fool sit down to play chess with God. And the saint's first move is to turn his king on its side and lay it on the board. The fool will sit there and ponder, thinking that he has a better first move. In your, in your meditation, understand that. You have nothing that needs to be done. Accept the gift. It's trickier than it sounds, because there's a wheel of dharma rolling, a wheel of karma that belongs to your mind. And if you're not able to let go of your mind, if you're not able to let go of it as being you, as being your identity, then you're going to be carried down the hill by that rolling wheel of dharma, by that karmic thought. And what's the proof of it? We've mentioned it before. Watch your mind for a while, and you will see that it's not your mind. You're not in charge of it. Every single thought of your mind comes out of the previous thought. It's just an ongoing stream of, of thought. You can't break it. You can't change it. It just goes on. That's your karmic wheel. And as long as you hold on to that as your identity, you'll hold on to its suffering and its joys, its planes and its pleasures, always in pairs, always an up and a down, never a constant self. That constant is only you who's watching the wheel. That unchanging self is you who's watching the mind. And the nature of that unchanging self is bliss. A great Swami said at a meal one time, he says, the biggest mistake that people make is that they go and they, they, they do something for enjoyment. They complete it and they enjoy it. And then they have to go and do something else for enjoyment. He says it's because they associated that pleasure with the object. He says, see, what's really happening 
is that you have a desire. You've convinced yourself that you need X, Y, or Z in order to be happy. So you go and you get that X, Y, or Z, and for just a moment you have no desire because you've fulfilled it and you've let go. And in that moment of letting go of your desire, you enjoy bliss that actually naturally radiates from you. And then another desire comes in and takes it away, and you're off and running again, thinking that you have to go get that object then to experience that bliss again, when in fact that bliss was coming because you had no desire for a moment, because you had found yourself to be sated for a moment. And in that special moment, you enjoy the nature of the self. You see, the slightest noise covers up that revelation inside. You get distracted and pulled out of your center by the senses by the senses. To plunge with utter abandon into the depths of spiritual inwardness, to realize which the Master urged us over and over again, saying, dive deep down, dive to the depths of yourself. Dive to the depths of yourself, to the depths of Satchit Ananda. Bury yourself in an acceptance of those three qualities which are your only truth, your only reality. Dive into them. Become inundated with them. Let them spill out of you. Dive deep into the sweetness of God's bliss, he tells the Brahmo Samaj. That God's bliss is the image that he put in you when he established you as a living shrine. Dive deep into bliss, Dive deep into bliss. Drink it. Imbibe it. Accept it. Let it just wash over you and consume you. Dive deep, O oh mind. Dive into the ocean of God's beauty. Of love's beauty. Dive deep into the thought of love's beauty. Think of your mother and the love she inspires. Think of your partner and the love that inspires. Think of all the things and separate out the love from them and understand that that love always has its source in you and it's being reflected off of an object. Learn to go within and to see that which is being reflected in the world as all of your desire and give up the, the headache of desiring and accept Dive deep into the ocean of God's beauty. If you descend to the uttermost depths, there you will find the gem of love. Go seek, O oh mind. Seek Vrindaban in your heart. Seek the playground of God in your heart. That's where she lives. That's where she exists. That's where she is sporting and playing in this world. You're just watching and taking credit for all of it. Let go. Enjoy the sport and know that you are untouched, unbothered by all of the sensations of the combinations of five. There you will find his loving devotees and Sri Krishna sporting eternally. Light up, O oh mind. Light up true wisdom's shining lamp and let it burn with a steady flame unceasingly within your heart. Who is it that steers your boat across the solid earth? It is your guru, says Kabir. Meditate on his holy feet. I put that one in there because nowadays there's this strong idea of I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> I ain't going to listen to nobody nowhere. I'm going to do it myself. And you can. You can. But there's 10,000 years of studied help available to you so that, that you don't have to spend many lifetimes trying to recalculate and refigure. Find yourself a teacher, someone outside of your ego. Your ego will only continue the delusions that keep it alive. You see, your ego is an imaginary thing. It doesn't have any reality to it at all. There's nothing there. And it's going to leave you, if you identify with it, it's going to leave you eternally insecure. You're always going to have to be praised to maintain it. You're always going to have to be making money to maintain it. You're always going to have to be handsome or beautiful to maintain it. 
you're always going to be having to prop up anything in the room to support this notion of yourself as an individual separate and apart from the beloved, it's going to be exhausting. And when you go looking for God in the same way, that's even more exhausting. What is the reason for a guru? It's something outside of your ego, a teacher outside of your ego that will tell you something that might be hard for you to digest that you would never tell yourself. That's the value of the ego, of the guru. <laughs> now we understand my problem. That's the value of the guru. He's outside of your ego. He may tell you to do stupid things. Do them. Do them in faith. It's that faith that's important, not the, not, not, not the value of the activity itself. It's you being willing to step outside of your ego to hear truth. That's how your tomorrow will be different. If you listen to ego, tomorrow's not going to be any different. Tomorrow's going to be the same playing cards that are in your hand today. The combination of five. Ironically, a poker hand. Referring to Japa, this is on, on, on October 24th, 1885, so a little while back. Ramakrishna is talking. He says, referring to Japa, he said to a devotee, Japa means silently repeating God's name in solitude. When you chant his name with single-minded devotion, you can see God's form and realize him. Suppose there is a piece of timber stuck in the water of the Ganges and fastened with a chain to the bank. You proceed link by link, holding that chain, and you dive into the water and follow that chain. Finally, you are able to reach the timber. In the same way, by repeating God's name, you become absorbed in him and finally realize him. See, this is a great, easy thing to do, to repeat the name of God. If you don't know the name of God, make it up. Give him a name. It doesn't matter. He'll hear it. And within your mind will form this understanding of the beloved. And it will become real because it is, it has always been there. You just never spend the time looking inward. So you've always been looking outward. You will feel this notion overwhelm you. Become bigger than the outside world. This sense of love, this beautiful warmth of, 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 of compassion that's deep, that's unending. You'll touch that, and you'll always have that, so that when the outside world becomes rude, becomes angry, becomes jealous, and the, 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 the stability of the ego begins to wane and begins to rattle, and fear sets in, know that this place is in you, and you can watch that with humor. You can watch it with fun. Yeah, that's the way of the world. That's the way of the world. Follow the name of God. You know, Swami Prabhupada, who taught me really everything I know, I'm finding out as time goes on. Swami Prabhupada told me something beautiful one day because I was talking about, about my frustration with not being able to be better. You know, not, why can't I even make the simplest change in my spiritual life and proceed? You know, why is it I try to add five minutes to my, to my, Meditation at the end of the week, I'm actually doing three minutes less because I got so frustrated. <laughs> he says, see, it is not you who needs to grow. It is not you who is evolving. You are perfect. That self is God himself. Your mind is evolving because of its contact with you. Sit in your meditation in that awareness. And understand that you are not the mind that needs to be controlled. No, you are the guru, and your mind is your disciple. Enjoy your bliss in the presence of your mind, and the mind will grow quiet when it sees the teacher enjoying his bliss. Enjoy your infinite existence. Understand that you're inhabiting an eternal moment that had no beginning and no end. Sit in that place. Let the mind grow quiet when it realizes the teacher is enjoying infinity in the presence of its fear, of the mind's fear and the mind's insecurity. You are the only treasure in this world. 
the words of Swamiji. You are the only treasure in this world. Understand your infinite value. Touch your infinite love. Feel your infinite existence. Come to a space where you understand you have lived this life for thousands of years and the combinations of five have never fulfilled a single promise. Let go of them. Sell all that you have. Hold on to nothing. And find infinite bliss. Find infinite compassion. And become a light in the world. Become somebody's strength. Become somebody's help. Be somebody's protector. Find someone to encourage. Give to someone who needs. Be what you are. Be what you've always known yourself to be. And be free. Let's take a moment just to reflect on these things. <clears throat> 